0: Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and a special episode, uh, this one dedicated to Adam Bloom, one of our loyal listeners who has been pestering me for quite a while to do something about the Australian Light Horse and I have neglected the topic, uh, And uh, but all that changes today because I'm sitting here in, the, uh, in the, the, the stunning Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney with the director Brad Manera and we're going to have a bit of a chat about the Australian Light Horse, the iconic Australian Light Horse, so Brad... Thanks very much for joining us again on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Matt. Nice to see you. And, uh, yeah, great topic, uh, interesting choice, because it's been the source of controversy for so many generations, I suppose. It really captured the Australian imagination, um, really, since the creation of... Uh, Australia's military forces at the uh, the beginning of the 20th century, the the decade after Federation.
0: Let's talk, where did the idea of this, I mean, the Australian Light Horse, famous for the charge at the Neck in Gallipoli, the famous charge at Beersheba, you know, as a World War I unit, very, very famous. Where did the concept come from? The What were the beginnings of the Australian Light Horse?
1: Yeah, look, I think we can trace it right back to the earliest colonial periods when, um, Mobility was essential, and a man on a horse can move a hell of a lot faster um, than a man dismounted and uh, The Australian colonies were never received British cavalry um, during the the period from seventeen eighty eight uh, to eighteen seventy there weren 't any British mounted units deployed here, uh, indeed, even the uh, the British artillery that came out sourced horses locally and because New South Wales, ever since the 1840s, had been a source of horses for the empire and uh, horses from all of the Australian colonies. Uh, most of them were sold, particularly to the British Army in India, through brokers in New South Wales. And so clearly they became known in shorthand as whalers. And uh, there was a, a bit of a mixed breed that was a fairly useful Australian stock horse. Famed for endurance, as a general purpose riding horse, ideal for flexible cavalry, cavalry that could undertake a a wide variety of roles. In the 19th century, the British cavalry were uh, divided into heavy and light cavalry. Light cavalry were mobile, they were very useful for scouting tasks, for uh, liaison tasks, something that required mobility and, and speed, and they were not necessarily used primarily as shock troops, they were a mobile reconnaissance unit. Heavy cavalry, on the other hand, did provide that shock element they rode physically larger horses um, they were often armored cavalry i guess the the last elements of body armor dating to knights in armor they they had bigger swords they were you know and and by and large they tried to recruit bigger blokes and uh, so there was this very uh, there was this division between heavy and light cavalry heavy cavalry shock troops light cavalry mobile reconnaissance light cavalry largely mounted on ponies heavy cavalry on horses of 16 17 18 hands big animals uh, some of them crossbred shire horses they weren't that quick but by gee you could hear them coming and uh you know if you're an infantry in square soldiers stand uh, soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder with bayonets fixed and you've got 100 a thousand, two thousand of these people bearing down on you, the, the ground is shaking. It's, it's a terrifying spectacle is being charged by heavy cavalry. It really took very steady infantry to stand firm in front of heavy cavalry. So that was a really useful uh, way of dividing and using the mobility that men on horses provided. By the end of the 19th century, it became obvious when infantry have got breech-loading rifles, they've got range, they've got firepower, and when things like lighter, more mobile field artillery and particularly machine guns start entering the battlefield, the man on a horse is presenting a very large target. And so the traditional mounted arm of armies, the the cavalry, start to think about reorganising how they are used on a battlefield. The thought of a mounted cavalry charge is suddenly becoming a specialist task that is used rarely rather than mm, the natural use of of cavalry. And so uh, what you tend to find is that cavalry, both heavy and light, are undertaking the same tasks by the late 19th century. They're losing their traditional uh, tasks and becoming blended and they are providing soldiers who can move, use the mobility of men on horses, but engage the enemy dismounted, which was traditionally the role of dragoons, uh, an arm of cavalry that uh, gave a a mounted soldier firepower with mobility. Move from battle to battle, but go into action dismounted. Um, So you've got this very complex uh, branch of the army that can do a whole range of tasks, uh, but they specialise in certain aspects. By the 19th century, that specialisation is starting to disappear. At the same time, the British army have pulled out of the Australian colonies in 1870, and in the decade that immediately followed, the Australian colonies started to think about the potential for a threat. The British have gone. We're lucky to have an occasional visit from a British warship in the Australian station, but is that really going to help us in the event that the enemy get a a contingent ashore? How are we going to deal with that? And so the Australian colonies, in their own way, started to think about creating their own little armies, if you like. They were never going to have, be able to have the infrastructure for a major army, so they tended to call these defenders, defence force or military force, so they're forces, plural, because there's a cavalry force or an infantry force or uh, an artillery force. Uh, Some are volunteer forces, some are militia, uh, some are permanent force, usually Brits on exchange. And so when the Australian Commonwealth is created in 1901 and we have a Defence Act in 1903 we don't have a standing Australian army, we have Australian Commonwealth military forces, plural, and that's what the Australian General Service badge reads. What that meant was that each of the colonial defence forces or the colonial military forces are amalgamated and they've got to work out how these units that have evolved quite separately are going to work together. Of course, they don't really get tested until 1914, but that gives them a decade. And what they've been developing is defence forces that are based on a British model, but it's something that the colony can afford. So some of the wealthier colonies develop quite complicated units of artillery, siege artillery, coastal artillery, field artillery, They develop infantry units that are modelled on line regiments. Others are uh, locally uh, modelled on British rifle units. And uh, when it comes to mounted units, they start to look around at the British model. And some colonies choose to go down the cavalry route. But what sort of cavalry? Do we want heavy cavalry? Do we want light cavalry? Do we want dragoons? what's happening in Britain. And they're watching this transition from cavalry, specially armed for specific purposes, to a much more flexible mounted arm that maximises its mobility. And so the Australian colonies each individually come up with the idea of men who can shoot and ride to create the the mobility, but by and large with the intent of going into action dismounted because that's what the British cavalry is doing at this stage. They've given away the idea of massed horse charges. That's just going to provide a big target for a bloke with a machine gun. So let's think about a mounted unit that can combine the mobility and the scouting ability of light cavalry with the shock of heavy cavalry, but essentially on a modern battlefield what you need is a highly mobile gun platform and so they come up with what they end up calling mounted rifles or mounted infantry and by 1903 this evolves into the Australian light horse. New South Wales persists in cavalry and so you get um, in the late 1890s the development of the Australian horse. Um, politician named Mackay um, started at Harden, Murrumburra and 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 raised this uh, what he'd hoped would become a national unit of cavalry, and they were classically armed, swords. Um, the you know they were all they always thought that given the opportunity they would love to charge with swords drawn, standing in the stirrups, classic cavalry stuff. The reality was that when their soldiers actually went into action. They, they performed very much in the, in the role of Australian light horse. The same was with the, the Lancers in Parramatta that, were, that grew out of uh, the Australian or the New South Wales experience in the Sudan in 1885, operating alongside British infantry and mounted units in the Sudan. And, and so um, they, when the Sudan contingent came home, they, they identified a need for, for cavalry and, and eventually uh, from those discussions the, the New South Wales Lancers evolved um, but the real test of Australia's mounted arm came even before Federation when Australian uh, contingents volunteered to declare war on the Boer Republics in October of 1899 uh, alongside the British when the, uh, when the Boers decided to uh, um, reject a British ultimatum to become part of the empire and uh, what evolved was the Second Anglo-Boer War of October 1899 to May of 1902. The first Australian contingents were dismounted, apart from a handful of New South Wales lancers. All of the other contingents were dismounted. The British discovered very early in the war that the Boers, most of their army, were this mounted infantry-style local volunteers operating in commando. And um, they they were men who could shoot very well. Uh, By and large, they went into action dismounted, but they had the mobility of mounted soldiers. And so the British put Australian colonial troops, and indeed colonial troops from all around the empire that had started to arrive in South Africa, onto horseback. Initially, That led to some very amusing situations because uh, from my home state in Western Australia, the first WAMI, the first Western Australian infantry that arrived were stuck on horses and they go into action on the 9th of February 1900. And these were all railwaymen from Midland or, um, you know, office workers from Perth. They couldn't ride. And uh, so when they bump into 500 Boers coming out of the, the uh, towards the um, the Eastern Cape, uh, and they're on patrol with the Innerskilling Dragoons, who are very fine horsemen, and uh, the Innerskillings realise if they've got to, fl- you know, shoot and scoot, if they've got to engage the enemy and then run, that the Western Australians aren't going to keep up with them. So they say, you blokes hold the hill and we'll go for help. And uh, so 27 Western Australians uh, on, their, on their horses ran for a, a little feature uh, near Colesberg, and uh, they defended that, it became known as West Australia Hill, but operating in a mounted infantry role. And that was the task that Australian mounted troops became very adept at in South Africa. And they came back from South Africa with an extraordinary reputation for being able to um, adapt to a changing battlefield environment and to put men on horseback that became very, very useful, highly mobile force. And so after the Defence Act of 1903, there was this enthusiasm for um, defence forces and a big portion of that was going to be, or as, as big a portion as anyone could afford, were going to be mounted units. And rather than have each colony calling themselves variously mounted infantry or mounted rifles or light cavalry, they were all told to arm themselves in a uniform fashion and they became known as Regiments of Australian Light Horse. And um, so there's always been um, this discussion about were they mounted infantry, were they cavalry. I, I think that that discussion is largely um, ignorant of or, or ignoring the fact that conventional mounted tactics had changed because battlefield environment in the 20th century had changed. And so I think you know that, that these Australian mounted soldiers, the Australian light horse are fulfilling the role of cavalry in the early 20th century. Uh, They're fighting dismounted, admittedly, fighting the way mounted infantry are. However they're using their horses for scouting, they're using their horses for mobility and from time to time they use those horses in shock tactics. We didn't, we chose to arm um, our, our our mounted soldiers as if they were prepared to fight on foot. So um, the Australian Light Horse were not issued with swords and lances. They were you know, intentionally armed um, to, to fight dismounted. And I think that that's probably triggered some of the debate about whether they were mounted infantry or, or, or cavalry or not. But you look at the structure and they're clearly squadrons and regiments they're not companies and battalions and uh, so they're they're, you know they're very much modelled on a British cavalry structure.
0: Brad fast forwarding to the First World War which is obviously when they the Australian Light Horse performed their most famous acts. Tell me about who were the men who were enlisting in the light horse and I mean there's a huge romanticism about the light horse now it's seen as a very sexy part of the story was it like that in the day was was a young bloke joining the light horse seen as quite a distinguished option compared to just running off and joining the infantry
1: joining the Australian light horse was very clearly uh, a, a a romantic direction for A uh, for a volunteer to take Um, the the light horse had uh, prior to the war always tried to create a degree of mystique about themselves. Uh, The Queenslanders were wearing emu plumes in their hats. The Western Australians were wearing black swans feathers. The um, the the Australian horse in New South Wales were wearing black cock's feathers. So you know they were they were identifiably different. They wore unlike the infantry they wore leather leggings. Uh, They wore leather night. 1903 bandolier equipment whereas the infantry was wearing the 1908 webbing equipment so you know there was a light horseman stood out and um, any bloke with a with an ego uh, wants to stand out and uh, so there was a real attraction uh, when the AIF was created to join the light horse and uh, initially it was going to be the smallest component of our um, our overseas Expeditionary Force. Initially, the plan was to create a um, an entire division of infantry soldiers, up to 18,000 strong, uh, accompanied by one single brigade of Australian light horse. Now, there's well over 20 regiments of these guys in our militia army in 1914. So everybody wants to join, but there's only four regiments for them to do that And so there's this great competition to get into the light horse. What that meant was they could be very, very choosy. And so they were uh, the sons of pastoralists. They were the sons of politicians. It was quite a a privilege. And indeed, Western Australia, for example, was initially not invited to create an IIF light horse unit. And there was an enormous outcry. And uh, there was a strong local sentiment that if I can't, ride the war, I'm not going. Uh, I'd rather stay with my horse back in Western Australia. than th- and, and so it took several months before Western Australia was finally allowed to raise a Light Horse Regiment AIF. So yes, absolutely, there was a very, very strong mystique about the, the Light Horse. Look, perhaps it was a hangover from the Boer War, perhaps it was a hangover from the days when our politicians said that you know there was this inducement uh, to enlist and the government only wants men who can shoot and ride. Um, perhaps it was a hangover from some of the industrial disputes in the late 19th and early 20th century where the light horse had played a uh, significant role in the... Um, in aid of the civil power in, in uh, you know, strike breaking and that sort of thing probably uh, these days. We'd, we'd, we'd question the role of the military in, uh, in aid of the civil power, but uh, it was certainly a, a, a resource to be used uh, in colonial and early 20th century Australia. But yeah, absolute mystique about the Light Horse. Uh, they look different. Uh, the, indeed, they look Fabulous when they riding down George Street in Sydney or, or down the terrace in Perth um, people saw them and and uh, you know that was a unit that you wanted to join
0: that mystique uh, came crashing down a little bit with the Gallipoli campaign when the light horse were deployed to Gallipoli unmounted left their horses behind well, I mean we all know the story I mean we don't, I don't think we have to spend too much time you know, delving into the history of the neck, etc. But talk to me about uh, well, what was the relationship like between the infantry and the light horse at Gallipoli, for example, in a place where everyone is jammed in, living amongst their own filth, and it was a great equalizer—the uh, the, the the killing fields of Gallipoli. What was the relationship like between the infantry and the light horse in that environment?
1: Mm, well, I think the Gallipoli campaign is a really fascinating study for exactly the examining the relationship between uh, the mounted and dismounted arms within the AIF. Uh, obviously, the, the campaign began with an infantry assault uh, that bogged down on the second line of ridges um, by 10.30 in the morning of the first day. And then, as the uh, the Turkish counterattacks uh, continued through May, um, there were calls for reinforcements, and um, the AIF decided that the Light Horse regiments would be broken up and sent as batches of reinforcements to the infantry. The Light Horse absolutely jacked up, said no. If you we will go, but we will go as identified bodies. We will not be absorbed into the infantry. And uh, and so the, the situation was so desperate that they clearly needed the units to deploy. And so the light horse uh, left about 20 to 25% of every regiment stayed in Egypt to keep the horses healthy, uh, keep the horses fit. They hoped that when the breakout of the beachhead at anzac was achieved then they could suddenly whip their horses over to the peninsula the boys would get back onto into the saddle and ride to constantinople of course as we know that didn't happen what ended up happening was that these reduced light horse regiments came to anzac and fell in to fill the gaps in the line left by the cavalry uh, by the infantry casualties and uh, so the it, it Created a difficult situation because commanders in the field had infantry battalions that were, hopefully, at full strength, a thousand strong, and beside them were light horse regiments that were five to six hundred strong, and they were allocating tasks and um, you know sort of having to sort of manage how that was going to to uh, work. You couldn't obviously give a battalion task to a Light Horse Regiment because it just hasn't got the, uh, the number of soldiers. Nevertheless, it worked. The Light Horse fell into the line. The infantry didn't seem to have a problem with them at, at all. They preserved the 1st, 2nd and 3rd Light Horse Brigades, preserved their brigade structure... And uh, so the, the 4th Light Horse Brigade was broken up and, and, and used as reinforcements to other light horse regiments, not to the infantry. And uh, so that was uh, the way the campaign was was managed. Um, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of animosity, but when you look at the photographs, um, notionally the light horse was supposed to have been reissued with infantry equipment so that they were not identifiably different. Enemy intelligence couldn't pick up exactly who was was operating opposite them. They were told to 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 leave the most distinctive aspects of the light horse uniform behind. Uh, and yet the photographic evidence would suggest that enough of the light horsemen smuggled their uh, leather bandoliers and even from time to time emu plumes ashore at Gallipoli uh, and leather leggings and so on and you and you see photographs of of light horsemen and they're very obviously light horsemen using their their, uh, their 1903 uh, mounted uh, pattern equipment rather than uh, the infantry kit selling a little
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Charge at the Neck in August 1915, obviously one of the darkest chapters of the whole Gallipoli story, and for the Light Horse, which participated in that, the exact opposite of what they were designed to be doing. You talked about mobility, you talked about prestige. Charging against machine guns and losing hundreds of men in that tiny little patch of ground was, I'm sure, something that the Light Horse never even dreamed of. What effect did the neck have on the Light Horse from that point going forward?
1: The charge at the neck is an interesting study because it was part of a grander strategy to break out of the Anzac um, beachhead They were just the unlucky unit that was chosen to do that particular charge. The 4th Infantry Brigade was given an equally unlucky uh, task in that they had to traverse the gullies and ridges to the north of Anzac and then launch an assault on Hill 971. They failed in that, like the Light Horse failed in their attack on the neck. So um, it... It wasn't necessarily um, that there was a difference between the light horse and and the infantry. At that stage, they're all doing exactly the same task. I suppose the big problem was that a light horse regiment is smaller than an infantry battalion, and so when the Victorians of the 8th Light Horse and the Western Australians of the 9th Light Horse suffer 80%-plus casualties, it really affects the unit morale, and uh, it has a devastating effect on the people at home because these people... By and large, have enlisted together. They, they've grown, you know, they've grown up together. They're, they're they're from small communities in rural Victoria, from small communities in rural Western Australia. Like all of the Light Horse units, you know, they, these these are people that that went to school together. They, they were they were mates before they enlisted, and uh, so you know, devastating eighty percent casualties uh, are going to have a huge effect on the morale of the of the regiment and of the brigade, but also of the communities that produced them back home in Australia. Um, some have argued that the Third Light Horse Brigade wore the ghosts of the charge at the neck on their shoulder for the rest of the Sinai-Palestine campaign. They were a constant presence that these regiments had suffered very heavily. I don't know, you know, the, the post, some populist historians have made that that um uh claim I don't know, you know, by 1916 the casualties from Gallipoli have been replaced by a massive uh recruitment drives and a very very enthusiastic uh home population that have volunteered. So, you know, you're not getting many Gallipoli survivors amongst the Australian Light Horse regiments by the end of the Sinai campaign and that's a devastating campaign. So the guys come back from Gallipoli. The the light horsemen come back from Gallipoli. They're reunited with their horses. I can only imagine how heartbreaking it was for the blokes to recognize that there are a lot more horses here than there are men to ride them. You know, I think that's that's something that would be um very little has been written about. Uh it'd be fascinating to try and find people that have have written whether their diaries, whether they're letters home, seeing a mate's horse when you know that bloke is dead at the neck and his body was not recovered until nineteen nineteen or his remains were not recovered until nineteen nineteen that you know, you, you get back and, and, and you discover that your horse is still alive and fit. As is his, but he's dead. But soon there's somebody else in that saddle, uh, and they recognise that the canal is under threat. And Australians by this stage are wise enough to realise they are citizens of the world. The AIF is a particularly literate army, and uh, so they and they're all on a great adventure. And they see Gallipoli as a setback, but they feel that victory is still what they're fighting for and the reinforcements are bubbling with enthusiasm and uh, so that just breathes life into these regiments and they realise the infantry are going off to the Western Front some light horsemen do go to the Western Front as core cavalry and they, they serve and fight in a very, very different war to the bulk of the Australian mounted soldiers who are kept behind in the Middle East Um, as a mobile force to protect the Suez Canal because the Turks, foolishly believing that uh, they can field a very credible army after the victory at Gallipoli, decide to go on the offensive and they launch an army across the desert and Sinai to capture the Suez Canal. And the British have infantry units in the canal but they also have these reinforced regiments of Australian Light Horse, with a smattering of veterans amongst them from the Gallipoli campaign, highly mobile, accomplished soldiers, and I guess to a degree vengeful soldiers because they have lost so many of their mates on the peninsula. And that's a pretty deadly combination for any Turkish army to come up against when they march across Sinai. And that's when we see the real test of Australian light, the Australian light horse is in the Sinai campaign because there the enemy isn't just the Ottoman invader. It's the countryside. It's the deserts that extend over the horizon. It's the lack of potable water. Um, you know, we create the Imperial Camel Corps at this stage to take on the desert, but the Australian light horse nevertheless ventures into Sinai and that's a real test of man and horse. Uh, long rides, without water, in brutal temperatures. And I think that's really uh, a campaign that needs much greater study, is just how skilled those people were to keep their horses fit in those conditions. And, uh, and they, they fight remarkable battles, bloody battles, against mass Turkish infantry and indeed, mounted Turkish soldiers, uh, and they 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 win. They win at Romani. They uh, they charge. Mounted Third Light Horse Brigade gets on their horses at Magda Harbour just before Christmas, 1916, and they charge the Ottomans who have taken position around the uh, the wells, and they drive them out. So you know, a big part of the success of the Sinai campaign is down to. The Australian Light Horse, and they are fighting as mobile scouts, uh, as mounted infantry, being able to, you know, particularly at places like Romani, where the, the Turks are coming on in massive numbers, and an Australian Light Horse regiment can mount up and relocate and deliver mass rifle fire at a moment's notice, much much more quickly than infantry possibly could. Um, so you know they're doing the right, you know, they they're doing exactly what um, cavalry of the period. Are intended to do and they're keeping their horses alive at the same time and they learn things they learn about keeping their horses healthy in the desert they and they and they apply a lot of Basic Australian experience from the home front, you know everybody knows about spear pumps uh, they you know they 're used to managing traveling stock up in the north and so you know they, they can they travel in easy stages they establish uh, horse lines in you know in shade if it 's available um, uh, you know they 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 develop uh, systems of um, uh, collapsible uh, um, uh, troughs that can, so the, so entire squadrons of horses can be watered at once from a single spear pump, um, and so it you know they they demonstrate that they are a very very powerful part of what by this stage has been rebranded the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, the British Army operating across Sinai, and they drive the Turks out because the Turks don't have the infrastructure to sustain an army on campaign in the desert. And so the the countryside and British infantry and Australian light horse defeat the Turks in Sinai, drive them back to the borders of the Ottoman Empire and, and their most distant pro- province, Palestine. And then the role changes again because what the Australians and the British, what the Egyptian expeditionary force encounters when they come up against that frontier of the Ottoman Empire is a line of fortifications running from Gaza on the coast, inland, almost as far as the water wells of Beersheba. And uh, because the army is being led by... Um, British infantry by this stage they've got tanks um, there's there's a very active air war occurring over the Middle East the British launch their offensives against Gaza Gaza's great if they can capture it Uh, It means that they've got port facilities, they can land supplies and water. Uh, If they keep close to the coast, there's a potential for naval gunfire support, or at least the Navy to provide extra communications, uh, floating hospitals, all of those sorts of things that keep an army operational. But at Gaza, they bog down. And through early 1917, the army butts its head up against very well-considered Turkish and German defences at Gaza, first and second battle. Uh, First battle almost succeeds. The Australian Light Horse do this extraordinary flanking move, but because of the poor communications, the the fog of war, if you like, they're they're withdrawn. So Gaza nearly falls in the first battle at the last minute the hard won advances by the Australian Light Horse are neutralised by a more cautious a commander, probably exercising more caution than he needed to. So they withdraw to their start line, and they then, a few weeks later, launch the second Battle of Gaza, and again, men on horses are shot to a standstill. Uh, the infantry grinding through the desert shot to a standstill. You know, it's bogging down to the sort of trench warfare that the British army is seeing on the Somme and in Belgium. Uh, at the same time, the British are encountering the Hindenburg Line, places like Bullecourt and Arras. And that's just not what they need in the Middle East. And so the British receive a new commander after the Second Battle of Gaza, a bloke named Edmund Allenby. Cavalry general doesn't necessarily hold the highest regard for Australian troops, but... He realises that they're a safe pair of hands for a major gamble, and he's a gambler. He's he's terrified by this idea of um, continuous trenches with no flanks. Um, he really does want to um, try and create a new battlefield, a war of movement. And so he launches this extraordinary, and it can only be described as a gamble, uh, an offensive where he marches an infantry, artillery and cavalry force out into the desert to outflank the Gaza-Beersheba line. It's a two-day march into the desert and um, horses can't go for more than two days without water. So he knows that there's no return ticket. They capture the water wells at Beersheba or they die in the desert. And that's the, the... brilliance but the frightening, frightening gamble that he takes with that operation. Allenby marches his army out into the desert, they attack Beersheba, infantry and artillery are grinding their way through the Turkish defences, but always in the back of their mind is, we've got to take those wells. The infantry are doing it too slowly. What's going to happen? We've got this problem. The light horse is used to be a, in a huge sweeping move around Beersheba. So the Australian light horse climbed Tel El Saba and uh, so they, they've, they've got the desert flank. More Australian light horsemen pour past Tel El Saba and cut the major supply route down from Nablus. So the Turks are surrounded. Well, almost. They still think they can retreat. But there's still that issue. They need that water. And they realise that um, they've really got to capture the wells. And they're aware that any engineer with half a brain is going to have wired the wells. If the infantry are going to... Crow, if, they, if they do break through the Turks, the last thing the enemy are going to do is decide on scorched earth. They're going to blow up those wells. And so uh, Allenby realises we've got to take those wells. He gives the task to his mounted commander, uh, Harry Chevelle, the Australian uh, Cavalry Commander, and he looks around for his reserves um, because his most experienced mounted soldiers are heavily committed on the Nablus Road and on Tel El Saba, He's only got the relatively inexperienced 4th Light Horse Brigade uh, commanded by a brigadier named Grant and uh, he just says, we've got to solve this and we've got to solve it straight away and he makes the famous command, put Grant straight at it and the 4th Light Horse Brigade r- performs brilliantly. These, this is the reserve team, this is their B team and they charge... Six, maybe eight kilometers across open ground against a broken but nevertheless still uh, entrenched Turkish positions with artillery and support, there are even a couple of german manned Ottoman aircraft overflying dropping bombs it 's a remarkable thing, and it, they achieve it in minutes. They gallop, walk initially in formation of squadron and then and then of regiment um, and the the fourth light horse and the twelfth light horse with the eleventh light horse and their ambulance in reserve and they break out into the plain and they ride to a trot Um, and then over once they've got the Turks in in sight uh, it's an open gallop and the men are standing in their stirrups there's there's 800 plus Australian light horsemen at full gallop bearing down on these Turks Um, this is a recreation of balaclava. This is this is Australian light horsemen being used as cavalry shock troops, and uh, and they achieve it. They the first wave gallop over the Ottoman trenches and they ride straight into town. Uh, the second wave dismount and engage the Turks, so that there's you know neutralise the enemy that you've left behind the assault wave, uh, and they get there and they find that two of the wells have been blown, but the other seventeen are still intact, and uh, and they're able to secure them before they can be blown up, and that just makes the whole the the, the difference. The uh, the infantry, the all of the mounted troops are able to march into Beersheba. They're able to water their horses. The, the Germans and the, and the Ottomans realise the Gaza-Beersheba line is now a waste of time. It's been outflanked. And the rest of it, as we know, is history. You've then got this extraordinary war of movement up the Jordan Valley, uh, along the coastal plains. Uh, it becomes a cavalryman's war. And the Australian Light Horse take to it. You know the Camel Corps is, is uh, dissolved, and um, the the Australian Light Horse takes a major role in the the uh, as I say the campaign up in the Jordan Valley. They they ride into what's now. Jordan, uh, they raid Es Salt, they ride towards Amman, um, they they sweep around behind the Turkish defences. It's an extraordinary campaign. They're not alone. I mean, I don't want to suggest that the Australian Light Horse are the only mounted soldiers in the in the area. There are British Yeomanry, there are uh, there are Indian cavalry. So it's a it's a mounted war. Um, it's it's the war that the generals on the Western Front are very very jealous of. And uh to the extent that um you know, by the final months of the war they're advancing faster than the Turks can retreat. And you get the extraordinary Battle of Megiddo. You know, they're fighting over the same ground as the uh the the the, uh, the Battle of Armageddon and the uh and then the Book of Revelations, you know, they and and it's a very And, and again, I mean, I think Megiddo and the Great Ride is a demonstration that the light horse can't win wars on their own, Um, that you you need the threat of infantry... um, with all of their infrastructure, artillery, and so on um, the uh, so the battle of, of of megiddo is is very very well organized and I think it's Chevellet is most brilliant where they, uh, he, he's he, by this stage um, he's got an entire corps and uh, he's able to use aircraft and use infantry and artillery to make the Turks believe that there's going to be a drive along the coast but also another drive up the Jordan Valley and beyond. And so the Turks split their army to face both of those threats and that creates a gap and it's into that gap that he thrusts all of his mounted soldiers and you know the great ride to Damascus occurs in those final months of 1918, the Australian Light Horse uh, and the British Cavalry and an Indian Cavalry ride between the Ottoman armies and they just throw any attempt, any possibility that the, uh, the Ottomans have of defence uh, on, its, on its head. They, they, you know, there are enemy coming at them uh, from from in front and behind, and you see footage of lines and lines, tens of thousands of Ottoman troops surrendering uh, and and being sort of mustered, brought into British infantry regiments and Australian light horse and British cavalry uh, leading the way, and um, you know, I mean, there's still a few. Um, Political issues, of course, and uh, you know, out in the, in the desert, you've got uh, Faisal's desert army, the Hejaz army, the Arab army, uh, and there's a, a need to include them in this in this great victory, and so they were uh, earmarked for the taking of Damascus. The Australian Light Horse played a role. They were told to um, they were told to destroy the Ottoman retreat route down the Barada Gorge, and uh, and to ride around Damascus neutralise any threat to the Arab army so that it could march in victorious and um, the third light horse brigade those the the survivors of the charge at the neck uh, and their reinforcements are given the task of uh, riding around the city and they're they're led by a, a chap named Arthur Olden commanding the regiment at the time He's a dentist from Narogen and uh, in civilian life and a very enthusiastic volunteer soldier. And he leads the uh, Tenth Light Horse into, uh, into Damascus with the intention of riding around. But he, he, with any Arab city, there's narrow alleyways and there are slums and there are camps. And so taking a body, a formed body of armed men with the potential of an enemy... Down those narrow alleys just don't work for him, and every time he finds it getting narrower and narrower, he diverts his soldiers to find a path where these soldiers can be work in mutual support until he finds himself suddenly in the centre of the town. That's not where he's supposed to be. He knows he's not supposed to be there, but the locals rush out because the town has collapsed. The Turkish army, um, have their command structure have evacuated. And so, you know, part of the town's on fire. Um, There's rioting and looting going on. The local administration thinks we need somebody to restore order. They see this armed body of Australian light horsemen marching through the Grand Square, and they grab them, almost drag them out of the saddle, Bring them into the Grand Sarai and, and surrender. Uh, the oldest city on earth surrenders to a dentist from Narajon. Uh, you know, the, 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 the uh it's it's just an extraordinary moment uh where, where Alden knows he's not supposed to be there. Uh, it's you know, there's a world of, of diplomacy that he has just completely subverted. And so he accepts the surrender. Uh, dusts himself off, walks in, he's got his Webley revolver drawn accepts the surrender and says, yeah, thanks very much but, you know, my boys have got a task they get back on their horses and carry on off after the Turks and uh, so, you know, um, David Lean would have us believe that Lawrence and his army uh, beat the British into uh, into Damascus but the reality is the Australian Light Horse were there several hours earlier uh, making uh, making that safe passage a, uh, a reality, um, but uh, you know, just they really deserve a place in our history uh, and have achieved that because they are one of the iconic figures in Australian culture. You, know, you can't help but feel the infantry must be a little bit disappointed because they're losing mass numbers. They're facing some of the most horrific killing fields on Earth. And the light horse are the ones the papers are trying to write about. So, you know, it's, it, history is a difficult, uh, difficult master. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting looking at the reflections of veterans coming back from the Great War. And the light horsemen felt that the Sinai-Palestine campaign was something that was ignored for the war on the Western Front the infantry are coming back from the Western Front going, everybody just wants to see blokes on horses with plumes in their hats. Um, You know, I guess the reality lies somewhere in between. But uh, as a result of the Great War, generations down the track, the Australian Light Horse has certainly ridden into our
0: history. Just finally, Brad, the Light Horse obviously changed and was mechanised and Formed other part, refitted and formed other parts of the army, where indeed there's still elements of it that remain today. What's, what's that legacy for the, for the serving people today? Is, it, is the light horse still seen as a badge of honour to those units that have that connected history?
1: Oh, certainly. Oh, look, I think one of the great untold stories of World War II is the role of the Australian light horse in those early years. And, um, you know, at the, at the beginning of the war, um, because of the mystique of the light horse in World War I, a lot of people join the AIF and go into light horse regiments. It's extraordinary. Again, if I'm harping on about 10th light horse, but uh, you know, you're know you seeing blokes with incredibly low WX numbers, two- and three-digit WX numbers, indicating they've volunteered for service anywhere in the world in the second AIF, but they want to join the 10th light horse, and um, they don't go away. And they, they end up doing these remarkable long-range patrols up and down the, the the western third of the country. It's an untold story. They're riding through the Murchison Desert. They're riding up and down some of the most inhospitable country in Australia. Uh, the same with our mounted units in the Northern Territory when the Japanese threat closed on, on Australia. The, you know, the Light Horse was a, a, seen as a valuable part of the AIF in the early years of the war, but soon it was demonstrated that World War Two was going to be a mechanised war, and so mounted units traded in their horses by and large for vehicles, um, patrol vehicles. You know, we got lots of American White Scout cars. We eventually got the American light tanks, and um, and and uh, the British Matildas, and used them very effectively in the uh, jungles and in New Guinea and Borneo. So in answer to your question about uh, the history and legacy of the light horse within the current Australian Army, yes, it's alive and well. Absolutely, every Anzac day you see blokes that have served with 2 CAV in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, our 2nd Cavalry Regiment, um, very proudly wearing Light horse plumes. Um, you know, our, our armoured units were very pleased initially to wear the black beret and uh, you know the the traditions of the of the British tankies. Um, but you know, on when it comes to ceremony, they don't mind a slouch hat with emu plumes. And certainly, the Australian Army Reserve, um, the uh, the mounted units of the Australian Army Reserve, preserved many of the traditions created by the light horse in Sinai, palestine
0: well brad thank you so much Uh, we could have a uh, i'm sure we could continue for many more hours and we'll probably do a follow-up podcast uh, to cover other areas but it's just been absolutely fantastic so like always thank you so much for your time